As I mentioned in the introduction to the last message, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the most precious and most important truths in all of Scripture. It is so important that the person who denies the deity of Jesus cannot be saved. How could I make such a statement? How could I make such an assertion? Because in John 8, 24, Jesus said, If you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The phrase I am clearly comes right out of Exodus 3, 14, where the Lord God revealed himself to Moses in a unique way. When Moses said, you're sending me back to these people. Well, they're going to ask, who has is, who is commissioned you? Who is sending you? And, and just in paraphrasing, the Lord God says, tell them I am has sent you. Therefore, when Jesus claimed to be the great I am, he was claiming to be God in human flesh and fully equal with the Father. So when Jesus said, if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins, he was saying, if you do not believe that I am God, you will die in your sins. So again, I say, the person who denies the deity of Jesus cannot be saved, according to Jesus' own words in John 8, 24. It is important to stress this point because sometimes people, even Christian people, become confused by the cults and cult members who are very nice, very convincing, and very sincere. Is it really a big deal that people don't believe in the deity of Jesus as long as they believe in Jesus with all their hearts? That was a question that's been asked to me just within the last six weeks. Is it really a big deal if people don't believe in the deity of Jesus as long as they believe in him with all their hearts? Yes, it is a big deal. According to Jesus' own words, the person who denies his deity cannot be saved. Because this is true, the deity of Jesus is presented, out, presented throughout Scripture and especially in the New Testament. In the last message, we began to look at one of those passages, passages, and it's a unique one because it is a passage in which Jesus himself defends his deity. That passage is found in John chapter 5. So turn there with me if you are not already there. John chapter 5. In verses 1 through 9, Jesus healed a man who had been sick for 38 years. But rather than rejoicing in the work of God, the Jewish religious traditionalists were infuriated because Jesus broke with their traditions. In verse 17, Jesus defended his actions on the basis of his equality with the Father. He said, or John tells us, but Jesus answered them, My Father has been working until now, and I have been working. Now to us, that seems like a very short response from Jesus to these Jews who were about to kill him. It doesn't sound like he's really even addressing the issue or answering their objections. But this was really a powerful assertion to the Jews who heard it. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. When Jesus referred to God as his father or to turn it around, when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, not a Son of God, a child of God, a daughter of God, a Son of God, the Son of God, he was claiming absolute equality with the Father. 
And the Jews clearly understood what Jesus was saying. That's why John tells us in verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his Father. And here's the key phrase, making himself equal with God. The Jewish leaders involved in this confrontation clearly understood Jesus' claim. He was claiming perfect equality with God the Father. And as I mentioned, that's what the title, the Son of God, means. It's a title of deity. And that's exactly what Jesus was claiming. Following that monumental claim, what we have in verses 19 through 47 is Jesus' defense of that claim. As you probably know, there are many people today who try to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. I've probably lost count of the number of times I've heard that stated. Jesus never claimed to be God. Non-Christian religions assert that sometimes. Cult groups claim that. Liberal pastors and theologians sometimes teach that. Beloved, listen, if Jesus didn't want people to think he was claiming equality with God the Father, then this would have been the perfect opportunity to set the record straight. But instead, as you read through this passage, instead of trying to change any supposed misunderstanding, Jesus simply piles on more evidence to prove that his claim of equality with the Father is true. And that is the purpose of this discourse. In fact, I personally believe that this was one of the primary reasons why Jesus performed this miracle in the first place. It seems as if he purposely violated their traditions, knowing how they would respond, so he could bring about a confrontation so he could proclaim and defend his deity. So in verses 19 through 47... He doesn't deny his claim of deity. He doesn't back down. He doesn't soften his claim. Instead, he defends it. In essence, he says, you're right. I am claiming equality with God the Father, and I can defend that claim. And he does so in this extended discourse composed of verses 19 through 47. In a sense, what you have here is a courtroom scene. Jesus is on trial by the religious leaders for claiming to be equal with God the Father. In response, Jesus calls five witnesses to the stand to give testimony concerning his deity. Witness number one, Jesus' unity with the Father. Witness number two, John the baptizer. Witness number three, Jesus' miracles and works. Witness number four, the Father himself. Witness number five, the Scripture. Those are the five witnesses Jesus calls to the stand to verify his claim of equality with God the Father. In the last message, we looked at witness number one, Jesus' perfect unity with the Father. That is recorded in verses 19 through 30. In this message, we want to see the other four witnesses Jesus calls to the stand And that is recorded for us in verses 31 through 47. So please follow along as I read these verses, and then we'll back up and go through them verse by verse. But let's get the full picture first. Verse 31. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. 
There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John's, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? As I've already stated here in verses 19, if you go back from verses 19 through 47, Jesus calls five witnesses to the stand to give testimony to back up his claim of equality with God the Father. Witness number one is Jesus' unity with the Father. That is found in verses 19 through 30, which we covered in the last message in verses 31 through 35, Jesus calls his second witness to the stand. The second witness is John the baptizer, more commonly known as John the Baptist. But he wasn't a Baptist as opposed to a Methodist or a Lutheran. So John the baptizer is maybe a better way to refer to him. Verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. That sounds strange to us. Some translations say, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not valid as testimony. That's really more of a paraphrase, but it's getting at the point. Because when you read this at first, it sounds like a strange statement for Jesus to make. If I bear witness of myself, it's not true? What do you mean? Isn't everything Jesus ever said true? Sure it is. But the point that Jesus is making here is that if he alone gives testimony of himself, then the Jews wouldn't accept that. He knew they wouldn't accept that. Why? Because under Jewish law, the self-testimony of any man was not accepted in court. So what Jesus is saying here is this. I know that you won't accept my testimony alone as being valid. So I'll call some other witnesses to the stand. That's the point that Jesus is making here. And in fact, over in chapter 8, this very issue surfaces again, and he states it in, a, in a, I think, a clearer way even. Look at chapter 8, verse 13. Skip over just a few pages to the right. Chapter 8, verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Again, they weren't necessarily debating the truthfulness of it or accuracy as much as 
its validity as testimony. You bear witness of yourself. That's not valid testimony. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from and where I am going. So here Jesus says, just to paraphrase, I know that you don't believe the self-testimony of a man, but my testimony concerning myself is true, whether you believe it or not, because I know what I'm talking about. I know where I came from. I know who I am, and my testimony is valid. Back in chapter 5, it appears that Jesus anticipated that this is what the Jews would say about his testimony concerning himself. So he addressed the issue by saying, listen, I know if I give just testimony myself, you're not going to buy it, so I'll call other witnesses to the stand. Now back to our text there in chapter 5. So Jesus says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not valid as testimony. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. This is a reference to John the baptizer. That becomes clear as you continue on in the following verses. Verse 33, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. In other words, when you sent a delegation to John the baptizer, he told you the truth about me. He told you the truth about who I am. The interchange that Jesus mentions here in this verse took place back in chapter 1. Go back just a few pages to remind ourselves of it. Chapter 1, verse 19. This is John the Apostle, not John the Baptizer, writing about John the Baptizer. So John the Apostle writes in verse 19. Now this is the testimony of John the Baptizer. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me, uh, it is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. This, this interchange is what Jesus was referring to in chapter 5. The Jews sent a delegation to find out about John the baptizer. Who, who are you? Why are you doing this? What's your authority? But instead of talking about himself, John took the opportunity to talk about the Lord Jesus. And what he said was true. So Jesus reminds them of what John said, and he, he states, listen, when, John, when you came to John and asked him about himself, and he testified to me, what he said was true. Now go back to chapter 5, and notice with that in mind how Jesus lays this out. So he says in verse 20, 33, you have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. In other words, Jesus is saying here, listen, I'm not recalling the testimony of John the baptizer for my own sake or for my own satisfaction. 
I don't have to have testimony from men to prove who I am. I don't have to have testimony from men to, to win an argument. But I'm reminding you of John's testimony for your sake. I'm saying these things so you can be saved. In verse 35, he said, Jesus says, He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. John the baptizer was a lamp. This word means a portable lamp. John the baptizer, and here's the contrast. John the baptizer was a lamp. Jesus is the very essence of light. John was a portable lamp that sort of moved around and he would shine the light. Jesus is the source of light. And as Jesus mentions here in this verse, in the early days of the ministry of John the baptizer, the Jewish people were stirred. They were moved. They were intrigued. But eventually they got tired of hearing his message of repentance. To say it another way, they liked the light for a while, but they couldn't take the heat. So eventually they turned on it. Let me show you. Back up to Matthew 3 to see this. Go from the fourth gospel to the first gospel. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, a little pause here. It is almost certain if you track John's use of the term the Jews throughout his gospel, it is almost certain that he is using that little phrase, the Jews, as a reference not to the Jewish population as a whole, but to the Jewish leadership, the Jewish hierarchy. Or you could say this group right here, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, etc. So when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees called in John's gospel, the Jews... Coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, at first, John the baptizer was very popular because there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. But after a while, the Jews, especially the Jewish leadership, got tired of hearing him talk about repentance. And so in John chapter 5, Jesus reminds these Jewish leaders of the message of John the baptizer not to receive glory from men, but so they would be saved. He states that. I am saying, I'm reminding you of his testimony so that you might be saved. Beloved, to me, that is such a tremendous display of grace. Think about it. Those Jewish leaders wanted to kill Jesus and even attempted to kill Jesus. They wanted to discredit him at the very least. But he says he was interested in their salvation. Isn't that amazing? That is just, it's stunning grace. They're trying to discredit him and kill him. And he says, listen, I'm telling you this, not because I need to 
you know, build up myself or credit myself or in any way even have to defend myself. I'm saying this so you might be saved. Now back to our text there in John 5. So Jesus' second witness to defend his deity was John the baptizer. Now Jesus calls his third witness to the stand. And witness number three is Jesus works. Notice what he says in verse 36. But I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Here Jesus appeals to his works as a witness of his, the accuracy of his claim to deity. As I mentioned in the last message, this concept of witness is a very key concept in John's gospel. He uses that word 47 times in his gospel. What were the things that would bear witness of who Jesus was and what he did and what he claimed, etc.? Here Jesus points to his works. Many times Jesus appealed to his works as proof of his deity. Turn over just a few pages to chapter 10. I'll show you a couple examples. Chapter 10, verse 25. Chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. In other words, you don't believe my words. You don't believe what I say. And then he adds this. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Again, Jesus appeals to his works as proof of the validity of his claims. After all, only God can turn water into wine. Only God can heal from 25 miles away. Only God can give immediate strength to muscles that haven't been used for 38 years. Just three of the miracles that Jesus has done by this point in John's gospel. And that's why Jesus puts so much stock in his miracles. Down in verse 37, notice what he says. He says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. That's fair. If I can't do what the Father does, then don't believe my claims of equality with the Father. But if I do, though you do not believe me, that is, though you don't believe what I'm saying, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. That's a fair challenge. In essence, Jesus says, listen, If I can't do the works of God, don't believe my claim of equality with God the Father. But if I do the works of God, then there's no excuse for not believing me except willful rejection and willful ignorance. In fact, Jesus says almost that exact thing over in chapter 15. Keep turning to the right just a little bit. Look at what he says in chapter 15, verse 22. He says, and this is in the upper room with his disciples as he's discussing his ministry. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. Now, he's not implying they wouldn't be sinners. Their sin wouldn't be held against them in the same way. It would not be uh, on their record in the same way. In other words, I, I sort of removed all excuses, all rationalization, all justification. I came, spoke to them. Their sin is blatant. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And then he says this. He who hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also hated both me and my Father. That is strong language. 
Jesus says the only reason a person could possibly have to reject him and his claims of equality with the Father after seeing his works, the only possible legitimate explanation is hatred. Hatred. People reject Jesus' claims not because of a lack of evidence, but because they hate him. And they hate the Father. Again, I say Jesus put a lot of stock in his works. And that was the third witness he called to the stand in John 5 to defend his claim of deity. Now back to chapter 5 for the fourth witness. In verse 37, Jesus calls his fourth witness to the stand, and the fourth witness is the Father himself. Verse 37, Jesus says, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form. It's difficult to be certain or exact concerning what Jesus is referring to here when he says the Father has testified because there are a few options. But I personally believe that he is talking about his baptism and what the Father did at his baptism. Let me show you what I mean. Go back. We were in Matthew 3 a few minutes ago. Go back there once again and go to a little bit later in the chapter. Matthew 3, verse 13. Matthew tells us, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John, John tried to prevent him, saying, I, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly, here we go, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was the Father's witness of his Son. When Jesus was baptized, the Father gave testimony concerning the Lord Jesus, and the Father called him his son. Remember what I said earlier, when the Father referred to Jesus as his son, that title, the Son of God, that is an affirmation of deity. And that's why I believe that this is what Jesus was referring to in John 5 when he said, the Father himself has testified of me. But the Jewish leaders really didn't want to accept that because... They weren't in tune with God anyway. They thought they were. They claimed to be. But they weren't in tune with God. And Jesus says that. Go back to John 5 again. Notice what he says about them in their relationship with God the Father. The one that they supposed they had or thought they had. Chapter 5, verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. And then Jesus adds, You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. That was probably a way of saying that these Jewish leaders were not in tune with the Father, and therefore they weren't interested in what the Father had to say. They didn't really care what the Father said on the occasion when Jesus was baptized. They didn't really care. And that leads Jesus to call his fifth and final witness to the stand. That is the witness of the Scriptures. Verse 38 but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. 
You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. By the way, the first part of verse 39, the way it's worded in the original text, it could be taken as a command, that is an imperative, as the King James Version translates it. Search the Scriptures. Or it can be in the indicative, be seen as in the indicative, and be a statement of fact. You do search the Scriptures. Either way, the point is the same. Jesus may have been saying as a command, search the Scriptures more. Now, I know you read, but you need to search the Scriptures, and you will see they testify of me. Or he may have been saying, which is the way most of the translations go, they take it as an indicative and not as an imperative, you study the Scripture, yeah, you search the Scripture, but you do so for the wrong reason, therefore you've missed its message. You see, the Jews did study the Scripture. You know that. But they studied the Scripture as an end in itself. They didn't study to get to know God and hear His message. In fact, they believed that just studying the Bible would bring you life. Just the act of studying the Bible. Whether you believed it, embraced it, acted on it, just studying the Bible would bring you life or somehow gain you a good standing with God. So many Jews studied the Scripture thinking that by doing so, just by studying, not hearing and embracing, just by studying, that they would achieve eternal life. But they studied with a closed mind. Or to say it another way, they studied the Scripture just to support their own positions. They, they didn't go to Scripture to get their theology. We use the term exegesis today to draw out of the text what it is saying. They didn't practice exegesis. They practice asegesis, which is reading into the text something that you want to find there to support your preconceived idea. They didn't go to the Scripture to get their theology. Instead, they tried to use the Scripture to defend a theology they had already produced, which, by the way, is exactly what the cults do today. They misuse the Bible to try to support their wrong views that are not in the Bible. They don't go to the Scripture to learn the truth about God they go to it to try to bolster their wrong views. And that's what the Jews were doing. So Jesus adds the next statement in verse 40. He says, but, but, you search the Scriptures. Yeah, you go to them. You think just by studying you'll have eternal life. And you go to support your own theology, which is not in Scripture. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. If a man approaches the Scripture with an honest mind and an open heart, then he will see that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and he will give his life to Jesus. But the fact that these Jewish leaders weren't willing to do that was evidence that they were willingly ignoring the testimony of Scripture. And yet, as we saw earlier, Jesus was trying to teach them the truth so they could be saved. That was his concern. He was concerned for them and, and concerned with their eternal destiny but it didn't bother him that they didn't officially endorse him. That was the least of his concerns. So he adds that in verse 41. He says, I do not receive honor from men. It didn't upset Jesus that he wasn't officially endorsed by the Jewish leaders. He didn't need their endorsement. He didn't really care to have their endorsement. He wasn't concerned about receiving glory or, or approval from men. But the same couldn't be said for these Jewish leaders. In fact, they were more interested in receiving praise from men than from God because they really didn't love God, even though they thought they did. 
In verse 42, Jesus says, but I know you. And implied in that is, I know you. You don't even know yourselves. I know you. That you do not have the love of God in you. To use the words of John 12, 43, they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. They were very religious, extremely religious, but they didn't really love God. You know, to some people in our society, those two statements put together are an oxymoron. They just say, they just cannot accept the fact that that could be true, that there could be very religious people who don't really love God. They can't understand how that could be the case. In fact, they won't accept that that's the case. To them, if you're very religious, you love God. Jesus says here, no, they were very religious, but they didn't love God. And there were two proofs that they didn't love God. Those two proofs are found in verse 43. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. The two proofs that the Jews really didn't love God were, number one, they rejected Jesus, who was the Father's representative. And number two, they were willing to accept false messiahs. You want to hear something shocking? Since the day Jesus spoke these words, there have been, from the best count I can get, this is, this is a conservative number. I'm sure it's more than this. But there have been over 60 messiahs in Israel over the last 2,000 years that have been endorsed by at least some portion of the Jewish people. Over 60 messiahs. The Jewish people rejected Jesus who was the Father's representative, and yet they have been willing to accept false messiahs, one after the other after the other. That just goes to prove what Jesus said in verse 42, I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. They didn't have room in their hearts to love God because they were too preoccupied with themselves and what others thought of them. Verse 44, he says, How can you believe who receive honor from one another And do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. You know, beloved, this is is a basic choice that every individual must make. And it's not only a choice we make once and for all. It's a choice we have to make on a regular basis. But it starts initially with sort of a resolved choice, and that is this. You must come to grips with the question, do I want to be popular with God or with people? Because the fact is, sometimes they, not always, I mean, we don't want an unnecessary martyr complex, but sometimes the two are mutually exclusive. They just can't go together. Do I want to be popular with God or with people? Jesus says here in verse 44 that these Jewish leaders were more interested in being popular with people than with God. Sadly enough, that's the way Some people are still today. There are people, maybe you even have friends like this, co-workers, family members, they won't surrender their lives to following Jesus Christ because they're worried about what others will think of them if they do. That's what holds them back. Man, people will see me as, you know, an intellectual idiot or as whatever their concern is. It's amazing to me how people's perspective on life can be so horizontal. 
How can you be more concerned with what people think of you than with what God thinks of you? But that's exactly what was going on with these Jewish leaders. And that kind of choice, according to Jesus, is self-condemning. Verse 45, he says, Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. And beloved, let me tell you something. You know anything about Jewish people, Jewish culture, especially first century Judaism, you know this was a two-by-four to the forehead. I mean, this was a blow. What a pointed rebuke. Of all the indictments Jesus ever unleashed, this was probably his most, his most cutting, piercing. The Jews took pride in seeing themselves as unswerving followers of Moses. Look at chapter 9, a couple pages over. Look at this. It comes out in chapter 9. Here, the Jews are after Jesus again for healing someone on the Sabbath. This time it was a blind man. So the Jews question this man. Chapter 9, verse 24. We'll pick it up there. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, Give God glory. We know that this man is a sinner, referring to Jesus. He answered and said, Whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Then they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now they've already asked this question. He's answered it. He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. But you see how they prided themselves in being disciples of Moses. And that's why Jesus' remark in chapter 5 is so poignant, so strong. Go back there to that chapter, chapter 5. The Jews saw themselves as unswerving followers of Moses, but Jesus informed them that Moses, now catch the shock of this, Jesus informed them that Moses would not be their savior, he would be their judge. The very scriptures they tried to use to defend their legalism would one day bear witness against them. So you could say this, the fifth witness of Jesus is actually not only a defending witness, defending his claims of deity, it's a prosecuting witness against the Jewish people. Verse 46, he says, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. In Genesis chapter 3, Moses wrote about the seed of the woman who would come to crush the serpent's head. In Genesis chapter 18, Moses wrote words about the coming Messiah in Genesis chapter 49, Moses recorded a prophecy about the coming Messiah. In Acts 7, Stephen said this about Moses. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brother. And that is clearly a messianic promise. Moses had told of the coming Messiah. But Jesus says here, since, since you don't really believe Moses, therefore you don't believe me. If you really believe Moses, which you claim, you would believe me. Verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings. I'm telling you, at this point, it's, it's as if they're, you know, they're, they're trying to catch their breath at 
the audacity of this man to say, imply, they don't believe Moses. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? What an indictment. To say that these Jews really didn't believe Moses would have been the ultimate blow. And I take it that Jesus uttered these words so forcefully, so convincingly, that the Jews couldn't even respond because that's how the discourse ends. Look, that's it. That's how it ends. It almost implies that the Jews just stood there in stunned silence. But we know from what John will write later, it was not a stunned silence of conviction and, and penitence of heart. It was a stunned silence of murderous anger. How dare you say we don't believe in Moses? Jesus defends his deity, and at the same time he condemns all those who refuse to believe his deity. So now you have a choice to make. In verse 17, Jesus claimed to be equal with God. In verses 19 through 47, he called five witnesses to the stand to give testimony concerning that claim. So I ask you very simply, what's your verdict? You only have two choices. Understand, two choices. Jesus is equal with God the Father, or he is a blasphemous liar. Those are the only two choices. Let's pray. Father, it is crystal clear to us from so many passages, and this one not being the least, that Jesus' claim to be equal with you was not an empty claim. It was a truthful claim an accurate claim. And so as we work our way through this powerful text, it reminds us that no one, no one could make the claims that Jesus made. It would be the height of arrogance. It would be blasphemy if he were not God in human flesh. So may this be a truth that we never compromise, we never, ever let go of regardless of the price, regardless of the cost, that Jesus, your beloved Son, is God in human flesh and equal with you in deity. We pray in his exalted name. Amen.